Amen. Let's go before our Lord and ask Him, send His Spirit to help us as we open together uh, the very Word, the very Word of God, the Word of life for us. Our Father, our God, our Savior, our King, Holy Spirit, we come to you as our, our holy, holy, holy triune God and asking for your help. Lord, our, our desire is to give our attention to the reading and to the preaching of your word. We, we pray that you will help us in this, in this labor. It is, it is hard work uh, to listen. Uh, it is hard work uh, to proclaim. And we need your grace to do both. We pray that you give to our, our minds understanding of the text. We pray that you will give to our hearts a, a conviction of, of the sin that remains in us and a, a devotion, a glory, a, a praise of our Savior for all of his work. As we see in, in the pages of the book of Judges, and we see these accounts of your people of old and, and their folly, their sin, their rebellion, and we see a picture, a mirror of ourselves there. Lord, be merciful to us as we gaze upon this reflection. Lord, help us to grieve over sin, but help us not to stop there. Have a, a godly sorrow that leads us to the joy of repentance, the joy of fellowship with our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. You'll take your seat and turn. We're to the second to the last chapter in the book of Judges. Many of you thought we would never ever get here. We've come here to, the, to this last section. As you recall, chapters 17 through 21 constitute a new section of the book of Judges. Uh, our, our editor, our narrator for the book of Judges, we don't know exactly, humanly speaking, who wrote the book, but the way it's arranged is not strictly chronologically. In fact, we're going to find that the events in chapters 19, 20, and 21 actually happened very, very early in this period of time that we know is the time of the Judges. In Israel's history, this time... Uh, spans some 300 to 350 years. And we have a, a particular clue that we're going to see in Judges 20 that tell us that this, is, this, this, this event is dated very early in that cycle. Now, one of the things that I always labor with during the week studying a text is, you know, what am I going to do with this? And sometimes it, it's like the Spirit of God just, I get this um, not this miraculous experience, but it's just like the outline falls out of heaven, so to speak, and, it, and it's easy, and I understand exactly where I'm going, and then the labor of just putting it together and writing the sermon commences. And other times, it's late on a Saturday, and I'm still staring at the text going, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to preach? Because there's, there's, there ought to be a significant distinction between a historical lecture, even a biblical historical lecture, and a sermon. And so, if you've been around very long, you, you know, I, I typically try to give you an outline. I, I, I like to have a structure in the sermon. I like to know where we're going, and, and it's easier to follow along. It's, it's easier to write. It's easier to preach that way. But sometimes there's a text that just doesn't lend itself very well to being outlined in that way. And so, the structure of today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. The, the events of chapter 20 do divide kind of in three stages. Uh, we're we're going to see that uh, the first say, the stage in the this this big battle scene is a unified Israel coming together, eleven tribes coming together to oppose Benjamin, and then we're going to see this stubborn impenitence, this stubborn unrepentance of Benjamin, and and then we'll see the last, the larger section of chapter twenty is is the details of the battle. There are actually three different battles that commence on three different days the first two of which are, are lost by the 11 tribes of Israel. They're whipped by an outnumbered Benjamin twice, and before they're finally successful in the third time. But, but So I'm going to read the text here in a moment, or read the majority of, this, of the, the chapter. I won't read its entirety. It's a longer chapter. But having walked through that and giving some com commentary as we go, I'm going to come back and wrestle together, I hope, with three questions that in my mind emerge out of the text. Uh, the first of those is just, what's the point? Well, why is this here? What's the main idea? What, what, as we leave here today, what's the main thing that God's people should remember and recall and, and take to heart about Judges chapter 20? And not just the chapter, but 
the events contained in it. What, all that's going on in the history of Israel, what's, what's the takeaway for us? Um, and then we're also going to wrestle with a question that I think comes out of this. Israel is defeated twice with a total of 40,000 casualties, a tenth of their male fighting age population, and yet God told them to go up. How do we reconcile that? How do we deal with this? When God says, go, and they go and they get whipped. How, how, do we, how do we wrestle with that? What do we think about that? And then finally, I think a significant question is, what does this mean? What does Judges 20 have to do with the church of Jesus Christ in Conroe, Texas, in the year 2022, almost 23? How do we apply this? How do we think about these things rightly in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that's sort of the plan. A little bit different. We're going to roll a little bit of rolling commentary, and then we'll wrestle with those three questions. I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to back up and read the last two verses. Uh, as painful as they are, it's necessary for us to, to, to really grasp the weight of this as we go into chapter 20. And then I'll read some excerpts, and I'll guide you as I go. Here now, this is the Word of God, beginning in verse 29 of chapter 19. And, and when he entered his house, the Levite took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me, surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she's now dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house, but now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of Israel throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that they may come, or that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. And the people of Israel rose arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Skip down to verse 26. We see, we're going to see those, those two battles, and I'll mention those here in a few moments. Those two initial battles. Then verse 26 tells us this, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. 
And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Then down to verse 35. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword, so the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now, Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, and they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. Five thousand men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them. And two thousand men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were twenty-five thousand men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But six hundred men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found they set on fire. May the Lord bless uh, the reading of his word. I want you to notice something here in this first section, primarily verses 1 through 18. We have a, an extraordinary event that's not, that has not happened before, and it doesn't happen after in the book of Judges. All of Israel, 11 tribes, are united together. In fact, three different times the narrator tells us they are of one man. As one man, they are unified together. The language in the first part of the narrative highlights two different things. One is, is kind of the, the breadth and the extent of their unity. This is unprecedented. Now think about this. As we go in, in your mind's eye, kind of go back through the journey of the judges. Samson was not able to unify all of Israel. In fact, remember the men of Judah came up and, and arrested Samson and took him back to the Philistines. Even uh, Gideon was not able to accomplish this. Barak, Deborah were not able to accomplish. They summoned all the tribes, but only some came. This particular event, for, for various reasons, bring together the entire nation of Israel but not against the Canaanites, not against the Philistines, not against the Midianites, but against their own brothers. It's a tragic event, but it's also a remarkable event because there is, a, there is an objective unity among the people of God here. And the narrator is making sure that we understand this is, this is substantial, it's unique. They are united as one man. It's unprecedented in Israel. But the language also demonstrates a specifically religious nature to their gathering. The narrator here uses language that's intentionally spiritual. It's religious. Look at verse 1. All the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation, that's not military language, that's religious language. And even when he says they assembled, now that term could be applied to a military assembly, but the way it's used here, particularly paired with congregation, and in the, the context, this is religious language. The men are coming out for a holy war. I've titled the sermon today, Holy War and Unholy Men. Because that's what we find here. We have a picture here. 
not only of Benjamin, but all of Israel, being unholy before the Lord, and yet gathered together as if they were going to embark upon a holy war. Also in verse, verse 1, we're told that they assembled before the Lord at Mizpah. There's an intentionality against our narrator. said They came before the presence of God. And verse 2 tells us he refers to them as an assembly of the people of God. So just notice that unity here. This is unique in all of the period of the judges. But why were they unified? What unified them? So kind of put a mental peg there. What unified them? We'll come back to that. It's just important as we wrestle through some of the application. Secondly, we see in the second phase of the narrative, beginning in verse 12, the stubborn impenitence or the stubborn unrepentance of Benjamin. I mean, here's the scene. Israel sends men throughout all the land of Benjamin, and they, they ask them, they actually commanded them, to hand over those evil men. We've heard the report. We know what's been, what's been done. And they need to be put to death. Now, by the way, and I'll back up just, just briefly, uh, a keen eye probably noticed as you read and heard the testimony of the Levite, as they gathered together this holy assembly, and they said, what's happened? And the Levite gives his testimony. Do you buy his testimony as fully honest? You shouldn't. He's shading the truth. And he's certainly shading it in a search of direction that he comes out as the innocent, aggrieved victim party. And we, of course, know. We were there last week, weren't we? We saw, through the Word of God, what happened. This is not an innocent man, but he presents himself as an innocent man. He says, first of all, these men surrounded the house and they threatened to kill me. They were intended to kill me. That wasn't their stated intention, was it? Now, that may have been the byproduct of their intentions, but that was not their stated intention. They asked, send him out that we may know him. Then, he leaves out, conveniently, the part that he is the one, by his own literal physical hands, who seized the concubine and threw her out to these ravenous men. It is also possible that it is by his very hand that she lost her life. The, the narrator leaves this, I think, intentionally ambiguous. Who actually killed her? We don't know. And I think that's part of the, the literary masterpiece here that is Judges chapter 20. There's an ambiguity here that communicates to us There was no innocent party here. The concubine was used and abused and and left for dead, whether she died because of that cause or by the hands of her own husband, we don't know. Because the Levite was not an innocent party. There's an intentional ambiguity. But with that said, they send out representatives. They are now angered. They respond viscerally. They respond emotionally to these charges. And they send representatives throughout Benjamin to give up these men. They, re, they literally refer to them as sons of Belial. The, the ESV translates it, these wicked men or these worthless men. But literally, it's sons of devils. These are, these are demonic men. And they recognize that. They recognize evil for what it is. And so, I guess to put this in Contemporary language, Israel demands that Benjamin deliver these evildoers over for federal charges. They are not going to allow Benjamin to carry out justice. There will be no justice. They know this. So they send a demand that these men be handed over to be charged under federal statutes and executed. They make it clear, this is a death penalty. They are going to be put to death because the evil needs to be purged. But here's the problem. Benjamin refuses. Benjamin just simply says, we won't give them up. We will not hand them over to be dealt with justly. Benjamin would rather go to war against an overwhelming military force. We're told that Israel musters 400,000 men. Benjamin musters 26,000. Now, according to my Aggie math, that's, that's not good odds, is it? And yet they would rather go to war against their own brothers, against an overwhelming force, than to give up their own kinsmen. Dale Davis quips, blood was thicker than covenant. Their blood relationships, their kinsmanship was more important to them 
than the covenant that they had made with Yahweh. Their, their human relationships were more important than God's standard of justice. Their friendships, their family bonds were more important than doing what was right in the eyes of God. Now, note what I believe to be a key phrase, and this is, again, we'll come back to this as we wrestle with some of the questions about application. But in verse 13, the second half of verse 13, the narrator tells us the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. The narrator seems to be communicating to us this was a legitimate request by a legitimate authority. This is the covenant people of Israel. They are working, laboring to keep terms of that covenant by punishing, by purging the evildoers from their midst. And Benjamin would not listen, would not hear. But rather they trusted their own judgment and preferred the toleration of evil in their midst rather than giving over as they ought to have done. Then the third section in in the narrative deals with the battles. What we're told is that the, of the 400,000 men that Israel mustered, 10,000 or 10% of them, 40,000 of them, were going to be dedicated to supply lines, to, to gleaning for food, to supplying the other troops. What this tells us is they knew this wasn't going to be a quick and easy battle. You don't dedicate 40,000 men to managing your supply lines if you think this is going to be you know, half a day's work and we're going to be done. They knew the Benjaminites were, were a, a tough group. This was a, a battle-hardened, uh, militarily specialized group. We see this even with their 700 left-handed special forces that they had assembled. The first two battles were nothing less than unmitigated disasters for Israel. You, you can read on your own, go back through and read the details of that. But the first battle, Israel kind of goes in thinking, we've got the superior numbers. This, it's, a tough, it's a tough opponent, but we, we have no expectation of losing. Plus, God told us to go. And before the first battle, the Israelites asked the Lord, who should go first in battle? That's the only question they asked. Notice they don't say, should we go? They said, who should go first? Notice what the Lord says, Judah. Now that ought to remind you, if you turn all the way back to the very first verse, in the very first chapter of the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, this is a sad, tragic recapitulation of that event. Here, as they go into the promised land, after the death of Joshua, the Lord promises, send Judah first, I've given victory. Now the people of Israel are arrayed together as one man. They go before the Lord, who shall we send first against our own brothers? And the Lord says, Judah. Only now it's not Canaanites they're fighting. It's their own flesh and blood. It's their own kinsmen, according to the flesh. So there's an intentional echo of that very first chapter. But notice what what is missing there. If we compare chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we compare that to chapter 20, what's missing? There is no assurance of victory from the Lord. None. And Israel goes up. And just like that, 22,000 Israelites are struck down on that day. 22,000 dead men. Now, they assemble before the Lord once again. And before the second battle, Israel asked the Lord, and the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, shall we go again? Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord says, go against them. Okay. Sounds better, right? They go again. And once again, they are routed. 18,000 Israelites lay dead. And following the second defeat, now we see a a larger explanation or a larger account of what happens next. So the first first battle, who should go first? Judah, boom, 22,000 men are dead. The second battle, 
Shall we go again? Yes, go. Boom, 18,000 dead. 40,000 men have perished so far. And now, now we see them going up to the Lord. We have a larger description. This time, the entire army goes up to Bethel before Phinehas, the priest. And they weep and they fast before the Lord until evening. Now, Phineas, notice something that's, 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 we need to take note of a couple things in this, in this part of the narrative. The first one is this, this parenthetical remark that happens in verse 27. Look at your Bibles. Verse 27, you'll see in, in the ESV it has it set off in parentheses. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. What, 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 what days? What are those days? It's a clue, and I'll come back to that when we consider these questions in the text. But that's a clue to us. There's something different. The ark of God is here among the people of God. And it was there in those days of the battles, the first two battles. The ark was there. Notice, secondly, that Phineas is the only named character in this whole account. And last week, I made the observation to you that, there, that all the characters were intentionally anonymized, meaning they weren't given names. And what that does, from a literary standpoint, is when, when the Levite isn't given a name, he stands for all Levites. He's a representative of the corruption of every Levite. When the concubine is not given a name, she stands in the place of all women, subject to the misuse and abuse of men who are doing what's right in their own eyes. Phineas, though, gets a name. Why? Why is this important? Well, two reasons. Two reasons. One is, is to show because he's not anonymous, he stands out, doesn't he? And this shows to us that rather than Phineas standing as an example for all Levites, he's the exception, not the rule. He's an exceptional priest. He's actually a faithful priest. And, and in days like the judges, when every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, a faithful priest was a rare bird indeed, wasn't he? That's what we find. But secondly, this is useful for us to date when this happened. We're told Phineas is the grandson. He's the son of Eleazar, who's the son of Aaron. We are only two generations removed from Aaron, which means this is happening probably very close to, just almost immediately after the death of Joshua. This is happening very, very quickly. Thirdly, third thing we want to notice about this part is that this time, when the people go up to the Lord and they weep and they fast all day long and they offer offerings up to the Lord, and there seems now to be no presumption on their part. They've dispensed with any presumption of victory. And they actually ask the Lord, genuinely this time, humbly this time, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? They didn't even consider that possibility the first two times. Shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And then, of course, the third battle receives the longer part of the narration because you have all the tactical strategies. And, and in short, what Israel strategizes to do is use Benjamin's aggression against it. So Benjamin comes out of the city, comes out of Gibeah, confronts the Israelites in battle. The first two days, that's where it stops, 22,000 men and then 18,000 men dead. Now, Israel's actually going to use that against them. And here's their plan. We've set another group of men in ambush off to the side. They're hidden. They're in the woods. And so that when the men of Benjamin come out once again, we're going to turn, just like we did the first two days, and retreat. Only this time it's a fake retreat. And as we retreat, these other men, the ambush team, will come in behind. They will attack the city. The city's vulnerable now because all the men of war are out in the field fighting. They will set fire to the city, and then the signal is when the Israelites see that there is smoke coming up from the city, they will know the ambush has been successful. Now we turn, and now we have the Benjaminites surrounded with their city on fire. And that's exactly what happens. They drew out the Benjaminite forces away from, city, then, from the city, then a pre-staged ambush team came in behind them, attacked the city, set it on fire. Smoke became visible, and it was at that moment, the text tells us, the Benjaminites went, this is a rough translation, uh-oh, we're defeated now. 
And they began to flee in the other direction toward the woods, and the Israelites were able to pursue them and cut them down. And all, all but 600 men perished. There were 600, we're told, escaped. That's an important detail that we won't deal with this week, but you'll know if you've read chapter 21 why that little detail is important. What do we do with this? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story. It's a, it's a tragic part of Israel's history. But why is it here? Why has the Spirit of God preserved this and preserved these particular details for us? The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, describing the people in the wilderness, said their, their exploits, their, their sins were written down for our example. They were written down in such a way that we should learn from them. So taking that presupposition, taking that idea that we, we ought to learn from this, what is it? Let's wrestle with three questions. And the first one is, is simply, what's the point of this? What's the lesson? What's the key idea? Why is this important for the church of Jesus Christ to understand chapter 20 of Judges? It's so easy, isn't it, for us to dismiss this as ancient history, and wow, those guys were crazy, and we pack up and we move on. Let's eat lunch. And we fail to consider, what is this speaking to you and to me? The theological point of chapter 20 is simply divine judgment on unrepentant Benjamin. That's the theological point. That's the main idea of the entire chapter. Is What we're to gain from this is that God judges unrepentant sin. And verse 35 is the interpretive key, I think, to the whole chapter. Look at verse 35. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. The Lord. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Now, verse 40, if you look down at that, that evokes some very vivid imagery of of an offering to the Lord. Look at verse 40. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. There's nothing less than the judgment of God. Now, I mentioned last week that there are direct parallels between Judges 19 and Genesis 19. The narrative of the the, the bitter end, this this tragic end of the concubine in chapter 19, parallels the account of Sodom in Genesis 19. You'll remember what happened to Sodom. God rained down fire upon it. And it parallels this. So in Genesis 19, verse 27 Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Our narrator's not subtle, is he? Benjamin had become Sodom. Gibeah had become Sodom. And they received the same judgment. What does that communicate? We, have this, we can have this temptation to think that there's this God of the left-hand side of the Bible who's different than the God of the right-hand side of the Bible. That God the Father is this angry, vengeful, spiteful, you know, just God, but the God of the New Testament revealed in his Son is, is I mean, he's a nicer guy. Nothing but grace, he's nothing but mercy, nothing but gentleness. And we have a wrong view of God, don't we? God has not changed. There is in him no variation shadow due to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This reminds us that God is still very much just as serious about sin as he ever has been. This is the primary message of Judges 20. God will judge unrepentant sin and those who protect and cover for unrepentant sinners. It's not just those sinful men. You think God had the capacity from heaven to look down and strike dead only those particular men? who were guilty of raping this concubine? Of course he did. We have evidence throughout the scriptures where he struck down particular men. Herod sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, safely in his own palace, and God struck him with worms and ate him from the inside out, and he died. God is capable of doing that. He didn't. He destroyed the whole city. God is going to judge unrepentant sin of those who protect and cover for unrepentant sinners as well. 
Matthew Henry makes the observation. He says, what did avail them that they had the ark of God in Shiloh when they had Sodom in their streets? God's law in their fringes, but the devil in their hearts. Nothing but hell can itself yield a worse creature than a depraved Israelite. Peter expresses it this way, judgment will begin at the household of God. There will be those who hear, those who profess faith, who profess to be part of the covenant kingdom, who are not. They will face the stricter judgment. Did we not hear in Mark's gospel this morning in our New Testament reading, there is a stricter condemnation out of the mouth of our Lord himself for those who've heard, for those who had opportunity to believe it and rejected it. People of Benjamin had opportunity to hand over the evildoers in their midst, but they chose to stand with sin rather than against it. Daniel Bloch says, The extent to which people will stand up to defend evil and evildoers is a measure of how deeply rooted is the canonizing rot in a cult. Isn't that true? The extent to which people will stand up and defend evil and defend evildoers is a measure of how deeply rooted idolatrous pagan rot is in a culture. So what is the theological point of Judges 20? Why is this here? What, what are we to understand and take away from this? If you leave today and you don't remember anything else, remember this. Once we sorted through all the implications of this suddenly unified Israel, once we've sorted through this, this account of, of a belligerent, unrepentant Benjamin, once we've sorted through the three battles and, and finally the destruction of, of Gibeah and all the Benjaminite cities, we come to this theological conclusion. God is going to judge unrepentant sin along with those who promote, cover up, and condone evildoers. God is just. Things that has not changed. But even the Israelites and their outrage against sin were, were not wholly innocent either. And this brings us to the second question. The main point, the main thrust of the text is that God is going to judge unrepentant sin and those who protect and cover it up. But there's another question that, to, to, just in my mind, arises from the text, and it's why did God allow Israel to be defeated in the first two battles? Or maybe we could phrase it this way, why did God cause Israel? to be defeated in the first two battles. You know, and it teaches us that we shouldn't, the Word of God is not afraid of our questions. We ought to be able to ask difficult questions of the text. Sometimes the answer is going to be, I don't know. Sometimes the answer legitimately is, God hasn't given that to us. In fact, some of the commentators take that position here. Kind of raise that question, why did God allow this? I don't know. Dale Ralph Davis makes that case, and I, and I think he's, he points us to the inscrutable ways of God. And, and he says, we, we, God is accomplishing something among his people according to his secret will, and he just simply hasn't told us what he was doing here and why he was doing it this way. And as Paul would say, with a potter, say to the clay, why have you made me thus? And I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to understand that text and to answer that question. You know, and, and, and Dale Davis goes on to say one of the applications in that, a helpful application if we take it that way, is to say, you know, there are times when we, in our own lives, we've searched the scriptures, we've sought wise counsel, we've, we've, we've sought to our best of our abilities to do things in a right, God-honoring way. And we still get whipped. We still get defeated. We still lose. We lose money, we lose friends, we lose relationships, we, we, we lose our reputations, having done things by the book, so to speak. And, and when that happens, not if, but when that happens in life, what do we do with that? We recognize that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His mind is higher than, than ours, and he has secret purposes that he's not obligated to tell us about. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So the short answer, or one possible answer, it's a short one, to the question of why God allowed Israel to be defeated is simply, we don't know. God's ways are mysterious, and we don't know what he was doing in Israel. And I think this is a perfectly legitimate answer to the question. And it's often true in real life that we don't know the answer to that. 
I'm going to propose to you, I think there's another possibility by which we can discern why the Lord allowed Israel to be defeated twice. Again, they lost 40,000 men, 10% of their entire male fighting age. I'm persuaded that God allowed Israel to give full vent to their unrighteous anger and face the just consequences of it. I think think, uh, Israel acted in unrighteous anger against Benjamin. Now hear me out on this. If I were to survey all of you, just kind of pass out a sheet of paper to everybody right now, and say, okay, write down one word for me and pass it to the front. Write down one word that would describe the substance of Israel's unity. Again, unprecedented unity in terms of its breadth and how comprehensive it is. What one word, what word, one word would you use to describe their unity? Vengeance. I would also accept on this quiz anger, outrage. I think it's 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 safe to say at first, you know, you, you, the whatever the equivalent was of the UPS driver back then shows up, and you open the package, and this is grisly. So the first response was shock. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, and so they all gather together. Then they hear the Levites' testimony. Look at verse. 10. We will take 10 men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of 10,000 to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin. This was vengeance. This was vigilante justice under the name of God. Robert Jones uh, has a, a helpful book, I'd commend it to you, called Uprooting Anger. And in the book, he, he, he wrestles with the difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. We're told in the Scriptures, be angry and sin not. There is such thing as a righteous anger. But how do we know if the anger that we are experiencing, the anger that, that flares up in us, is righteous anger or not? And he gives a threefold test. I think it's really helpful. It's easy, it's not hard to memorize. It's a threefold test. And then we're going to think about this criteria and then go back and apply this to the 11 tribes of Israel. First criteria is righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Well, is Israel reacting against actual sin? Oh, absolutely. Certainly they are. Okay, so so far so good, but you have to get three out of three in order to be, for your anger to be justly considered righteous. Number two, righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom, his rights and concerns, not on me and my kingdom, my rights and my concerns. What would we say about Israel in that regard? I think the answer is we don't know. Hard to tell. We can give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're they're justly angry about the covenant that God had made with them being violated by these sons of Belial. It could be an overly generous, but you, you could argue that. Third test. This is where the real, this is the real the kick in the pants for, for, for where we live and, and walk and with respect to our own emotions. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. You can be justly angry about sin. You can be Angry because God's kingdom and God's law and God's designs have been thwarted and violated. And if you act in an unrighteous way, this is an illustration. We see the wickedness of abortion in our culture. Should, should a Christian be angry about abortion? Absolutely. This, this, is a, this is actual sin. This is murder. The violation of the sixth commandment. Unambiguous. Or are we angry about the fact that, that this is a... a a reproach against the name of Christ, his kingdom, his rights, his privileges. Yes, he's the creator. This is a violation against his, his own name. It's killing his innocent image bearers. Well, let's say, okay, we're angry. Now we're going to go set fire to an abortion clinic. We're going to go bomb it. Would that be a righteous, an expression in righteous ways? No, it would not be. We ought to repudiate any such thing. We have to, we have to, we can be justly angry, 
but undo our righteous anger by an unrighteous expression of it. Fighting for holiness while persisting in our own unholy living is not ever blessed of God. So here's how do you think about Israel. All 11 tribes of Israel gathered against the 12th, Benjamin. They ought to have been in sackcloth and ashes. They ought to be weeping before the Lord, not because they got their tails whipped. The weeping didn't happen until after the first battle, after they got lost 22,000 men. Then they weep. But are they weeping about the glory of God? Are they weeping about the violation of the covenant? Are they weeping about sin in their midst? No, they're weeping because they got whipped. They should have expressed themselves something like this. Oh, Lord, search us and see if any iniquity is found in our hearts against you and against our brothers and sisters. They should have wept before the Lord due to sin, but there's no weeping prior to the first battle, and the second battle only has weeping with respect to the losses they had received. There's no humility over sin. They should have cried out, O Lord, God, have mercy upon us. Grievous sin has been found in our midst. Our own flesh and blood has violated covenant with the true and living God. Be merciful to us. Yahweh, please lead us in a path of righteousness for your name's sake. Yahweh, will you tell us how we ought to respond We've petitioned our brothers to give up the evildoers so that we can put them to death according to your law. They've refused to do that. Lord, what would you have us to do? It was none of that, was there? Instead, they gave full vent to their anger. And I think God their Father allowed them to pursue their anger and experience the consequences. Sometimes as parents, we have to make the very difficult, sometimes gut-wrenching decision to let a child pursue their own folly. Sometimes it's, it's the little one who you've told them over and over again, don't touch that, it's hot, don't touch it, okay. Some lessons can't be learned any other way. Much harder when it's a young adult, isn't it? Son, this is a path of folly. My daughter, this is a path of foolishness. Don't go down that way. And there's a stubborn refusal to heed, heed the warnings, to heed the counsel. And sometimes as a parent, the hardest thing, but the, the thing you have to do is be willing to say, I'll let you go. Prodigal father knew this well, didn't he? Son rebelled against him, and, and the prodigal had to believe that God may restore him, but I can't do anything to stop him here. I have to let him wonder. I think that's what God does to his people, to his own son Israel. He lets them experience the folly of their own anger. Now, was Israel wrong to pursue justice against Benjamin? Absolutely not. Not at all. But they were wrong to give full vent to their anger instead of humbling themselves before the Lord and seeking the face of the Lord and seeking to honor his name and his glory rather than their own sense of vengeance. Now, I'm going to try to build upon this as we think about application for the church of Jesus Christ. So here's our third question. The first question, what's the main point of the text? That God judges sin and those who cover up and protect and promote sin. Why did God give the Israelites over? I think, I, why did he let them lose? Why did he send them in the battle knowing full well they were going to get their clocks cleaned? Because they needed to learn a lesson. He needed to humble them. So he let them give full vent to their anger and experience the consequences of it. Now the last question is, what application, what warning does this narrative provide to the church of Jesus Christ? I think there's two points of application. And one is that the church of Jesus Christ, any local church, needs to be willing, must be willing to deal with serious sin and its myth. Our God hasn't changed. When there is, is known immorality among us, we have to be willing to deal with it, to cover it up, to pretend it isn't there, or to protect those who have done evil, to protect those who have objectively harmed others, is to participate in their evil. And we ought to remember that the Lord will judge sin and those who cover for it. Now, I brought up last week the text in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, I've heard it among you that there's a man who has an incestuous relationship with his father's wife, and you're putting up with it. In fact, you're, you're arrogant. You're boasting about your toleration. And, and I brought it up in that context because the point in chapter 19 was that unchecked 
publicly known depravity is just going to continue to get worse. It's like cancer that's going to metastasize. It's going to spread throughout the whole body. In fact, Paul uses the illustration of yeast. And given time, yeast is going to leaven the whole lump of dough. That's what happens. And so far, too, too common. What happens in, in the context of a local church when sin becomes known is there's a cover up, or there's a downplaying, a diminishing of sin, or members refusing to honor the lawful discipline decision of a church. Well, the church has, has heard the evidence, they've heard the testimony, they voted to cast this one out, and there are some members who say, we're not going to honor that, we're not going to respect that, we're going to continue to have fellowship as if nothing ever happened, because these are our friends, or these are our family members. There's division in the church sometimes when, the, when church discipline takes place. Rather than being unified together as a body, grieving over the sin, comes an opportunity for division among the people of God. Now notice, I think there's something else here. Um, there's another similarity. Benjamin would not listen. Now, I will, I'll assign this to you as, as, as homework. But go and, and take note of the words that our, our Lord Jesus uses in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. When he's speaking about the, the concept of private sin, someone sinned against you, you go and you... Confront them privately. And what does he say? If your brother hears you, you warn your brother. If not, he will not listen. You take one or two witnesses with you. If he will not listen to the witnesses, will not listen, then tell it to the church. And then he says, if, they won't, if he will not listen, even to the church, basically to the covenant community, if he will not listen to the true Israel of God, and let him be to you as a sinner and a tax collector. So there's a similarity here. Benjamin would not listen. And what our Lord Jesus highlights in the New Testament for those who are ultimately marked out as unbelievers, what, what should mark us as believers? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. So what Jesus says in Matthew 18 is that it may come a point when someone stubbornly refuses to hear. The entire covenant community is pleading with them, brother, please repent. You are wrong on this matter. Sister, you are mistaken about this. You're deceiving yourself. And one stubbornly says, I will not listen. That's nothing less than the spirit of Benjamin. Prevailing and continuing even to this day. And sadly, sometimes what happens is that one church will justly remove one from their midst, issue an order of excommunication. It's a somber, sober event when that happens. And that person goes down the street, joins another church, and there's never even a phone call. That's the spirit of the Benjaminites within other churches who indiscriminately receive people into their membership who have been justly disciplined by another church to receive them at their Lord's table having been justly excommunicated, lawfully excommunicated by the church of Jesus Christ. Our confession of faith deals with this particular issue of, of the temptation for division at the very point of church discipline. In chapter 26, which is the chapter dealing with the doctrine of the church, paragraph 13 is a very brief paragraph, but it's a very important one. It says, no church members upon any offense taken by them. And the, the footnote there references you to Matthew 18. So here's the scene. You've been offended. Someone has sinned against you. You've gone to them. Maybe you've even taken witnesses. They're sinned, but nothing's been done. The church hasn't acted. Justice has not yet been served. What do you do? Well, what's the normal response? Taking my toys and going home. I'm out of here. I will do my own thing. I will leave because I'm not getting what I want. Listen to our confession of faith. No church members upon any offense taken by them have performed their duty. It means they've gone to their brother or sister. Require, their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow church members, but to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of his church. One of the lessons we learn in Judges 20 is that God is active among his people, isn't he? The first two times, they went out to battle and they got beaten soundly 
even though they had superior numbers. The third time, they go out and they win soundly. And we're told, what was the difference? God gave them the victory. Saints, our Lord Jesus Christ is still actively governing and ruling his church. So when there is something that's happened and it hasn't gone according to, to the plan as you see it, are you willing to wait upon Christ? Are you willing prayerfully, humbly to say, Lord, what would you have us to do? I'm waiting upon you. I'm trusting that you are ruling and reigning even in my imperfect church. But there's a second point of application. And it's that sin, not only must sin be dealt with, but sin must be dealt with in the way prescribed by God and according to godly conduct. It must be dealt with in the way prescribed by God and according to godly conduct. By the way, just as an aside here, I'm not talking about any particular issue in our, in our midst at all. Relax. This is just what I think what comes out of the text of Scripture. God is disciplining and chastening his people, and he continues to do that. And he's called upon his people in all times to be faithful to their covenant with him. So as we think about this, how do, how do we apply this in the New Testament sense? Again, let's think about 1 Corinthians 5. Paul said, here's, here's the situation. Here's what's come to my, my hearing is that there's a man among you who's in an incestuous relationship. It's the kind of sexual immorality that even the pagans would not tolerate. Paul says, you're arrogant. You're boasting. Ought not you should have responded in anger and vengeance? That's not what he said, is it? What does he say? It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? What is the proper response? When the corporate community comes to be aware of sin in its midst, what is the response properly, biblically? Not repayment. Not vengeance. Venting, grieving. Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn? In Galatians 6, Paul's dealing with a similar subject. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I remember as a new believer reading that passage and, and kind of envisioning in my mind, well, I, I, let's say I have a brother who's, who's a drunk. And he's at the bar, he's drunk again, and, and I go in to fetch him, and I've got, I've got to be the mature one and get him out, and I've I got to guard myself not to be tempted to join him in drunkenness. And maybe that's a temptation. But what's the more likely temptation at that point? Especially this is the third or fourth time I've drug him out of a bar. How would you be tempted? See, that, that self-righteousness flares up at that point, doesn't it? That anger. Somebody's got to pay. Especially if they've sinned against me. If they've sinned against, you know, some, everybody else, that, that's, I mean, that's bad, but sinned against me? That's a capital offense. See how they, 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 Israel approached it this way. And I think the Lord is using this to help remind us, God has prescribed for us. Now, the terms are different in the Old and New Covenant. But God has prescribed for his church, for his community of faith, for his covenant people, a means of dealing with sin. And we have to deal with it according to his way. We are not at liberty to innovate. We are not at liberty to vent our own anger and wrath. We are not at liberty to seek our own vengeance. In fact, we are explicitly commanded against those. Now, when Paul says, you who are spiritual... In Galatians 6, we don't have to speculate what he means by spiritual. He defined that in the previous chapter. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, patience, gentleness, so on. But discipline should always be motivated by godly sorrow and a pursuit of holiness and a desire for the glory of the name of Christ. Never anger, never vengeance, never a, a sense of repaying for a wrong that was done. Is this not God's way of dealing with us? To offer to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. To offer us the grace of forgiveness. To offer us the grace of, of cleansing, of pardoning of sin. 
And the gospel requires us to believe that the promises of Christ to deal with our sin by means of pardoning and cleansing will lead to godly sorrow as a true mark of faith and repentance. Now, this also shows to us the the, the glory and the superiority of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, what was the only remedy to deal with sin? The death penalty. Death. That's the way evil was purged from among you. Under the new covenant, the terms have changed, not because God deals less seriously with sin. In fact, if we really understand what's happening when someone is excommunicated, when they are cast out of the church, that's a far worse penalty than earthly death. If they will not repent, if they will not turn, if they will not seek the face of Christ yet again, we're communicating to the whole world. They're outside of God's covenant graces. They're going to perish eternally. That's far worse than being stoned. Under the grace of the new covenant, sinners are sought out, not for the purpose of retribution, but for the purpose of recovery. As you read Matthew 18, notice that it's, it's positioned between two parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one who strayed And it's immediately followed by the parable of the unjust servant, the one who had an insurmountable debt forgiven, and yet he goes and he wraps his hands around the neck of one who owed him a a far less sum. Because I demand that you repay it. Having received mercy, he expected nothing less than full payment from another. But we must not conclude that God deals with sin less severely under the the new covenant. No, it's, it's the severity of God's judgment. Severity of God's judgment, the, 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 the fire of God's judgment that was poured out on Sodom, that was poured out on Gibeah, and poured out on the cross on his own son. God is not any less severe about sin. But under the grace of the new covenant, he has poured out his wrath on his own beloved son, so that all who will believe him, all those who will believe in him, We'll experience new birth. We'll experience new life. We're given a new nature, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. We'll have their sins pardoned and the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to them. Will you claim that promise today? As we, as we study Judges 20, don't walk away from here thinking, wow, I'm sure glad that God doesn't deal with sin in the same way he used to. He deals with it more severely but the object of his wrath. If you are in Christ, the object of his wrath that was justly due upon you is now upon Christ. And there's nothing left for you to pay. Which which ought to change how we deal with one another, shouldn't it? For those who are in Christ, and we stumble, we step on each other's toes, we offend, we grieve, we wound, how do we respond? Do we respond more like the Israelites? I'm ready to draw up battle lines, assemble a group. Let's go get the bad guy. We respond to the grace of the new covenant, recognizing the great debt that we've that we've in, the great debt that we've had that's just been washed clean. Christ has provided all of sacrifice that's necessary. Message of chapter 20 of Judges: that God is still absolutely as serious about sin as He ever has been. Not only for those who commit it, for those who cover it up and promote it and seek to hide it. But God has dealt with, or has, has given to his church a means of dealing with that sin. He calls us, as his covenant people, to live according to his covenant rules. May his spirit give us both understanding and, and the help necessary to obey his word. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who, who guides us into all truth. Lord, I pray that you will help us together, not only individually, but especially as your covenant people, to understand, to embrace, to believe that what you've given to us is wise and good and perfect. Lord, I pray that you will use this text as a warning to us not to trifle with sin, 
to see it purged from our own midst. May we not be in our own hearts like the men of Benjamin, where we have that one secret sin that we won't give up. We see the righteousness surrounding us, and we say, yeah, but that one I'm going to protect. Lord, will you purge us? Will you cleanse us? Will you cause us to believe the precious promises of the gospel, that in, in Christ we are cleansed and pardoned and healed? Will you give us grace as a community of faith to deal justly, to deal biblically with sin if it's discovered, when it's discovered in our midst. Teach us, protect us, cause us to look to our Savior and worship and pray. Amen.